It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. I'm not mad. I also don't think it's fun. I don't care about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Two, separating fact from fiction in Maui, plus a deep dive interview with a man who was in the fires in Lahaina. What really happened in Maui? Three, getting you ready for the Republican primary debate on Fox Business. It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to Wednesday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on Rumble or on YouTube and follow me on X at Will Kane. I gave an interview a little bit earlier today with Outkicks Charlie Arnault. She asked me about Maui and she asked me about what it has meant to me, this story of the fire in Maui. And I said to Charlie the following, I said, well, obviously I have a personal connection and it has been heartbreaking. But when you do what we do for a living, which is to share our opinions with others, it's inherently egotistical to believe that you should share your opinion with an audience in and of itself suggests a level of ego. And so when you do this for a living, you can be wrapped up in your ego, your ambition, your petty fights. You can be wrapped up in yourself. And as we have talked about together here on the Will Kane podcast, there's just got to be something more. There's just got to be purpose. And so I said to Charlie, while it was heartbreaking, the story has quickly also become very, for me, gratifying. So on Monday of last week, I told you I flew to Las Vegas and got on a plane, a 747 donated by the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, filled with goods from companies from craftsman tools to kids toy makers, teddy bears, air purifiers from Shark Ninja, almost a million dollars worth of product filled up in the 747 to deliver to a network of seven or eight churches in Maui. I'll tell you behind the scenes, this was something that I'd never done before, and I certainly, certainly didn't do alone in any shape, way, or form. This was an amazing effort of gratuitous and purpose-filled individuals across this beautiful, beautiful United States of America. During my first trip to Maui after the fires, I got a text from Pete Hegseth. He said, hey, man, Andy Abood at the Las Vegas Sands Corporation wants to connect with you about Maui. I ended up getting a text from Andy, who is, I believe, the senior vice president of public affairs, government affairs at the Las Vegas Sands. Now, the Las Vegas Sands is a casino corporation. They, at one point, owned the Venetian in Las Vegas. They own casinos in Macau, all across the globe. They were owned by the former big Republican donor, billionaire Sheldon Adelson, who has since passed and is now run by the Adelson family. Andy said, we have a fleet of planes. They have 18 planes. 
that is normally reserved for high stakes gamblers. They fly gamblers across the globe. And we'd love to donate it to getting stuff, needed items, to Maui. Now, the Sands has a history of this type of humanitarian charity. They've done stuff to get people out of Ukraine. They have done it during hurricanes. And they wanted to do it when it comes to Maui. I didn't know what to do with that. I I mean, what, what do I do? It's amazing, but what do I do? Well, at the same time, virtually at about the same time, I ended up texting with a guy who's become a friend over the last couple of years, former Green Beret Scott Mann. Scott's been a guest here on the Will Kane podcast. You can go back on previous episodes and you can listen to conversations between Scott and myself. And the reason you can listen to that is because Scott, yes, was a Green Beret who fought in Afghanistan and helped develop many of the village-oriented theories and and strategies and how to um, win in Afghanistan. But after we ultimately lost in Afghanistan and left, and the government left, so many Americans and people who contributed to our fight in Afghanistan were left behind. Scott started, along with many other vets, Operation Pineapple Express. Pineapple Express was the effort to get Americans through the gates of Hamid Karzai Airport or wherever they could to get on an airplane and get out from under the growing tyranny of the Taliban. Almost certain death for anyone who helped America. What an incredible effort, Operation Pineapple Express. Well, Scott reached out to me and said, hey, I've been asked to do something kind of similar called Task Force Lahaina, a network of people on the ground in Maui, but also who have experience, nonprofits, a company called Lyft, an charitable organization called Fill the Needs, a network of churches, CityServe, and many, many individuals who just wanted to help and wanted to start identifying needs and get them to Maui. And I thought, here's a place where I can introduce this offer from the Las Vegas Sands. And then a real effort took place. One day after Fox and Friends, we have these people come on that represent products at various times on the show, say, hey, check this out, you know, this bandsaw or this tiny home. And one day in August, there was a woman named Carrie Riley on the show, and she was saying, hey, check out these air purifiers. So after the show, I texted Carrie. I got her number. I texted her. I said, do you think those companies would be interested in donating air purifiers to Maui? Now, I knew that was a need. And Carrie jumped all over it. Over the matter of the next month, Carrie contacted about 16 different companies, e-bikes, scooters, tools. All of these companies, by the way, are on my Instagram page. You should go check it out. It's C. Will Kane at Instagram because these are companies that stepped up to help the people of Maui, donated hundreds of thousands of dollars, 50,000 pounds. That's more than 30 tons of products to help the people of Maui. And then the real work began. Like, how do you get that? After Carrie absolutely dominated, then we got to get it to Las Vegas and get it on an airplane. And this is where these amazing people like Fill the Needs and Lyft and others really flexed their muscle. I don't know anything about any of that stuff, you know? And so shipping, insurance, TSA, FAA, lifts onto planes, manpower on and off in Las Vegas and in Maui. An amazing humanitarian effort took place that I got to witness firsthand when I flew to Las Vegas last Monday. I'm talking pallets and pallets of stuff. I'm talking about the nicest plane I've ever seen. I can only imagine nicer would be Air Force One. I mean, this is no first class. First class is a dump 
compared to this plane. Again, Chinese gamblers or celebrities on this plane, master bedrooms, two stories, a 747 SP, um, lounges, a lot of it filled up with material. And they had a staff for this plane. They served us multiple meals of not airplane food. And we flew the six hours with an incredibly competent guy, pilot, just amazing individual, Paul Gilchrist, and landed the 747 in Maui, which they said is the biggest plane to land in Maui in three years. Short runway. Had to come in very slow. And I just watched all this stuff be unloaded, all these volunteer manpower hours. And then it went to Calvary Chapel Central in Maui, Pastor Sean Hausman. And his crew of volunteers got it and took it to his chapel where he's got what has been described as a major league distribution center. Shelves upon shelves upon shelves of stuff. People go online. They put in their needs. It's boxed up and ready for them when they show up. Whatever these people need because they've lost everything in a fire. And I got to see this story. I got to tell this story on Fox and Friends. And... It's up on my GoFundMe. You can see the story. I mean, rather, it's up on my Instagram. You can see the story. See Will Kane on Instagram. It's on my Twitter as well, at Will Kane. You can scroll back in. You can see the video. I documented it. We documented it. Um, and between that and then we went and we met many of the people who received money from our GoFundMe. That's a separate effort that have been pushing since this Maui thing, along again with many, many wonderful people, the Dyer family, the Barnes family, and so many of you that watch Fox or listen to the Will Cain podcast. I know, listen, I've seen it. I believe there's 21,000 different, 22,000 almost individuals who've donated to that GoFundMe out there. Many of you listening. And I know you gave $5. I know in some cases you gave more than $50,000. I know there's some people that I work with that sit on that curvy couch. I know there's people that I'll never meet or people that my kids go to school with, all of whom have given a lot, almost $2.6 million to this GoFundMe. And we dedicate ourselves saying, let's, let's help at least 200, right? And so for 200 at that time, that was $12,000 grants to people that lost a home that were devastated. At 2.6 million, we're well over that. I think, I think we're, we can do 216. $12,000 grants. And some families will receive more because they lost more. Meaning I know families that lost five homes, four homes between the extended family. I know one family that lost 12 homes, 56 of 82 people homeless. I told that man, their family was getting $144,000. And I saw the emotion, the tears, the effect on his face for what you did. Okay. I'm a middleman. I'm a middleman. I'm a connector at best. I cared. But what you did, what you gave, I want you to know where your money went. Again, I want you to be able to go to my social media. I'll be updating that. See Will Kane on Instagram, Will Kane on X, where I'll be telling these people stories. You can see their faces. I want you to see the faces. I want you to hear the stories of the people that you helped. But in the long term, what I'm telling you between these two things, Task Force Lahaina, this GoFundMe, it is gratifying. Because it can't be about my ego or my following or my bank account. None of it can, man. And of course, you know that. I just want you to know that I know that. And when I got into this career, I wanted to be a real person. I wanted to be authentic. And that meant what I could do of value would be to tell the truth. And I still believe that. Tell the truth. Don't worry about being liked. 
Don't worry about your paycheck. Tell the truth. And I believe, I believe I've lived up to that. I hope I've earned that reputation doing this for 10 years now. On CNN, I told the truth. On ESPN, I told the truth. And here with you on Fox, I tell the truth. But there's still more. There's a bigger purpose. We can be there for one another. We are there for one another. We can do good. I'm making this promise to you that in addition to telling the truth, I'm going to use this platform and any others to continue after this is over. By the way, I hope a lot of you got your t-shirts. I'm wearing it right now. Lahaina Strong. $100,000 raised through the shop forward of these t-shirts. Contributed to that GoFundMe. hundred grand. I hope you got your t-shirts. But I am going to commit to using this for positivity and purpose. I will continue telling you the truth in story number two today on Maui. Story number one. I don't care. I don't care about Travis Kelsey. I don't care about Taylor Swift. I'm not trying to be a curmudgeon. I'm just telling you it's not necessary. I love sports. It's its own form of entertainment. It's the best melodrama on television. It's the best. I always have since I was a kid. I pour myself my passion into my arbitrarily, although geographically, selected teams. The Texas Rangers right now. A lot of emotional investment is in the Texas Rangers today. The Dallas Cowboys, of course. The Dallas Mavericks, the Texas Longhorns, Pepperdine Waves. And because of familial connections now, perhaps some Clemson Tigers. But it's enough. I love it. It's enough of a drama. It's enough entertainment. Sports is entertainment. I understand that's what the business is. So I don't need pop culture to make it cooler. It's like, for me, flaming Hot Cheetos. Like, Cheetos were good. I didn't need them to be flaming Hot. It's just extra. You're doing too much. I don't need Taylor Swift. Now, look, I've got nothing against Taylor Swift, and I got nothing for Taylor Swift. I've never been a big fan. I know Shake It Off. I don't know. I probably know because she's so big, other songs, but I can't name them. I don't know the titles. I'm not really into that kind of music. I'm just not. You know, I like country and I like Americana. That's what I like. And I just, so I got nothing. She's not that big a deal to me. But I understand she's massive. She's gigantic. I just not into the story. Like the whole fake, like, oh, it's so awesome. Travis Kelsey's dating Taylor Swift. Because I don't need it to make sports better. I want to be clear. I'm not being a curmudgeon. I don't like that conservatives are doing this thing either. You know, where it's like Taylor Swift sucks. And I know why they're doing it, because Taylor Swift um, has a video out where she is saying she has to distance herself from Donald Trump or she has to criticize Marsha Blackburn or whatever it may be. And so what? I mean, Taylor Swift doesn't like Donald Trump. Does that make her different than any other entertainer? I have never required my entertainment options to live up whole cloth to my values. I wouldn't have much. That doesn't mean I don't want to honor and give extra attention and money to those that do reflect my values. But I'm not in the process of becoming a monk and cutting out everybody who doesn't. We can still be trad, traditional. We can still uphold honorable values without having to be an a- or a curmudgeon. So I got nothing against Taylor Swift. It's not even about Taylor Swift. I don't need rappers on the sidelines. I don't need the extra during basketball games. I don't need hype videos. I don't need any of that. I love it enough the way that it is. And I just think that both sides of this, those that are kind of saying, Taylor Swift sucks. And those that are like, ah, Swifties in football. 
Man, they're just both kind of riding the trend, the fad, the um, what is trending, the wave to get a little little uh, overflow onto their own accounts. And he's just jumping on what's trending. And so my hot take, I just don't care one way or another about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. We'll be right back with more of the Will Kane podcast. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Story number two. Separating fact from fiction in Maui. I want to today share with you a conversation with a man named E.C. Kaho. E.C. is Tongan. He's lived in Maui for many, many years. He works construction. You've met here on this program probably Kimo Clark, who owns TruthX Excavation. Kimo's a longtime Lahaina guy, longtime Maui. And E.C. works for Kimo. I've gotten to know E.C. a little bit, definitely got to know Kimo. And I find them very respectful, respectable, honest truth tellers invested in Maui. So here, not just through those individuals, in a moment, you're going to hear a long 30-minute conversation with E.C. Kaho. It's very emotional. He tells you about a moment where he held a six-year-old girl who lost her life. In a way, it's not so much an interview as it is therapy. And I knew going into it, E.C. wanted to get it off his chest. But here's one of the reasons. Because he wanted to address conspiracy theories. I know for many of you, you may not know, but the Maui story has been just absolutely engulfed in conspiracy. And I want to set the record straight, and I'm going to start with talking about the idea of conspiracies. I want to work through five points. Number one, conspiracies. I do not throw that word around. That is not a cudgel. That is not an insult. Because I believe I myself have been called a conspiracy theorist. I believe many of the things that have turned out to be true have been dismissed as conspiracy theorists. I believe if we were in Vegas at the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, we'd want to bet on those conspiracy theorists. They've been right for a long time about a lot. And here's the deal. We are at the mercy of a propaganda machine. Our government and our mass media are telling us lies and then trying to tell us that we are crazy for not believing their lies and that we're conspiracy theorists for offering alternate truths. And then we're censored should we diverge from the approved thought. I know very well where we stand today, and I know how it got here. It wasn't just with COVID. I actually think it started before COVID. We've talked about that. I think it started with a lot of these um, racial grievance crimes. We never got the truth on Michael Brown, on Trayvon Martin. We were told lies, and if we pushed back, we were a racist. It hit afterburners after COVID. And for what it's worth, many of the things I'm going to share with you today come from individuals who were called conspiracy theorists during that as well, who didn't believe the vax was right for their kids, didn't believe in the efficacy of masks, didn't believe the death numbers were what we were told, because they weren't. Remember when Donald Trump said it's like, what do you say? It's below 1%, I believe, well below 3%. And they said, that's nuts. That's crazy. I'm talking, you know, CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, all of them. Conspiracy. None of it was conspiracy. You were, your North Star was better pointed to the truth if you were focused on those who were claiming things that others called conspiracy than if you listened to Dr. Anthony Fauci or the CDC or the teachers union. I know all this as a backdrop and I know it's continued. I know the propaganda machine and censorship around the war in Ukraine. I know it on almost anything, including our upcoming presidential election with Donald Trump. I'm with you. 
I'm here to find the truth. But that doesn't excuse everything that is outside the bands of mainstream media's narrative. Not everything just because it is outside the bands makes it true and absolves itself from being a conspiracy. That's the backdrop of this. That's from where I come. Now, what is fact and what is fiction? Let's start with number two, the cause of the fire in Maui. This is still up for debate. Right now, it is literally the subject of a lawsuit, Hawaiian Electric versus Maui County. There was a fire at 6 a.m. that morning, which most believe at this point, and there is video evidence to suggest an eyewitness testimony, that a downed power line sparked into dry grass and started a fire at 6 a.m. 80 mile an hour winds that day. There are conspiracies that there weren't winds, that a hurricane 500 miles away couldn't cause those kind of winds. There were. I have dozens and dozens of eyewitness testimony, including my family members who were there that day that talked about. 80 mile an hour, 60 mile an hour, unprecedented winds, knocking down power lines, knocking out the power, then knocking out cell service. Now, the electricity comes into town from many different locations. So from what I've understood, you can't be sure that just because the power was shut off, it was shut off to the entirety of the town. There are different substations and different directions from the south, from the north. That's basically all you've got in Lahaina, south and north. Everything else is strung out. Along the shore, probably no more than two miles inland, maybe three miles inland. One main thoroughfare, a highway, Highway 30, Hanopialani Highway. Power lines were downed. They sparked into dry grass. Now, I told you that I believe from what I've been able to see, Hawaiian Electric has a hard defense to make. They were giving incredible amounts of money to renewable energy. They were focused on moving to something like 50 to 70% solar. Time and energy are a zero-sum game. If you're giving money to becoming climate neutral or whatever it may be, you don't have time and money to give to regular maintenance, making sure your power poles are not old, wooden, splintered poles. If you have more money, burying the power lines is incredibly expensive from what I've been told. Or just maintaining the grass underneath your power. Line, so they don't spark into a fire. There looks like there could be a tough defense against liability from Hawaiian Electric. For their part, they claim the fire department came and put out that fire. And that is true. But the fire department left. They claim the fire department left too early because that fire, most suggest, re-sparks up. It smolders in the ground, in the grass, re-sparks up by 3.30 or so that afternoon. 3 o'clock by 3.45, it's almost out of control. It rages into town within an hour. Moving like, I don't know, they said it was jumping housetop to housetop so fast like it was running through wildfire. The winds were pushing it. I've been told, eyewitness testimony, which you'll hear in a minute, that the fire was coming at a diagonal. Not straight up and down like this, but coming at a diagonal towards you if you were on the ocean side of town. That's how it started. Here's fiction. It did not start by a direct energy weapon. That's the, one of the claims. A laser beam either from the Chinese government or for our government. The motivations remain unclear to clear out the land of the natives, to give it to the government or to rich billionaires like Oprah. I, obviously, I can never prove a negative, but I know that the photo evidence at most point to is doctored. It's photoshopped. I know for one, there's a Starlink um, launch where they use the whatever the fire contrails going up from the rocket and made it look like a laser beam hitting the ground in Lahaina. I can't prove a negative. All I can tell you is 
Outside of a few local reporters, one named Chelsea Davis, local Hawaii, there's no one that's talked to more people than me. Outside of a few, there's no one. Dozens upon dozens at every level. Okay, I have spoken just for the record. I have spoken to people that were in the fires that day. I've spoken to people that have given therapy to those who made mistakes. We're going to talk about in just a moment. I've talked to politicians. I've talked to everyone. No one. I'm here to tell you, no one has any testimony to say it doesn't even occur to them to talk about a laser beam, a direct energy weapon. I can't prove a negative. There's zero evidence for a direct energy weapon. One of the claims, by the way, is that things that were blue did not burn. That's a protection against a direct energy weapon. And people show videos of like a blue car on Front Street that didn't burn or a blue umbrellas or a blue rooftop that didn't burn. And then everything else did. I'm here to tell you, on my last trip this past week, I got into the burn zone. More on that in a minute about how you get in and out, okay? Because it is buttoned down. My first trip, I couldn't get into the burn zone. I could get near this one neighborhood called Wahakuli, which you can see a vantage point from that Highway 30, but then you couldn't get in the burn zone. This time I did. I'm just here to tell you, I saw red cars that did not burn. I saw white cars that did not burn. I have testimony of blue golf carts that burned. Okay? Fire is crazy. Because you, there are guys out there posting videos that show why one thing burned and one thing didn't. I don't know what kind of evidence that is that other people believe it's arson. That is not valuable to you. It's not valuable. I'm just telling you with my own eyes. I've seen red and white that didn't burn next to another car. I don't know what color it was because it's burned beyond recognition. So why was that red car protected? Why was that white car protected? It wasn't just blue. Sometimes maybe a blue one didn't burn. I promise you at other times blue cars did burn. This is not a worthwhile rabbit hole. There's no evidence to suggest there was a direct energy weapon. The cause is much more mundane, much more common, unfortunately. It's going to be incompetence. It is going to be a story of patronage. It's going to be a story of neglect, maybe malpractice with one institution or the other, and maybe and most probably multiple entities that allowed this to get so out of control, a failure of politics without the sirens being notified. There's going to be failure, but it's failure. It's not, well, it's not nefarious in terms of intention. It's nefarious in terms of failure. Okay, number three, the barricades. Did the cops force people onto Front Street? Did they trap people to die? As you'll hear in just a moment in this interview with E.C. Caho, E.C. spent all night from the minute the fires broke out through to the next morning, making trips in and out of town. He had a water truck, and he was there to try to help save people. He'll tell you, yes, the cops told him not to go in, but he went in. On the south side of town, I have dozens of testimony that you could get out of town from anywhere on Front Street, anywhere in town. You could leave. You could get up to Highway 30, Hanopialani Highway, and you could leave town to the south. You had trouble leaving to the north. There were cop cars. As you'll hear in this interview, you'll say there were no barricades. What EC in this conversation means by barricades is he wasn't counting cars. There's like no official barricade. Cars turned sideways. A cop saying no. Again, I've had multiple interviews and I've talked to people where that they encountered those cops and some that ignored those cops and went around them and survived. Why were those cops doing that on the north side of town? You can see this video. It's out there. Those winds knock down power lines. They're all over the road. 
Okay. That at that moment was their primary concern. They were getting instructions from headquarters. It is true. They were getting instructions from headquarters, the cops on the ground, to not let people drive on 30 over the power lines. So they were waving them down onto Front Street, down into town, which is not a thoroughfare. You can get north and south, but you eventually have to merge back onto 30 at both locations. So the cops think that's the number one priority. It's dangerous to run over a power line. Was there power in the power line? Again, that takes me back to, was it shut off from all directions, all substations? I don't know. I don't know that anyone knows the answer to that question just yet. But again, it wasn't nefarious. The fire's raging up on the hillside coming down, okay? But in that moment, and I've talked to these people, they don't realize that's the number one priority. That's the number one fear. They think the power lines are. And it's not until it's painfully obvious to the people on the ground, they yell back to headquarters, I can't listen to this anymore. I got to let people go over these power lines. I got to let them get out. To those on the ground, override the orders. Remember, this is happening so fast and so chaotic. So those back in wherever headquarters is is saying this don't have a real grasp of the situation either. Even the guys on the ground don't have a grasp of how quickly this is happening. The fire is clearly the number one threat, but they don't realize it until it's too late. And they've already waved a bunch of people down into town. What happens in town? Again, I have testimony. I've talked to multiple people. People panic. They leave their cars. When that happens, other cars behind them can't get out. It's backed up now. One car could shut down Front Street. It's two lanes. It's one lane going one way, one lane going the other. It's not a thoroughfare that immediately can shut that down. Now you got a traffic jam. Now you got people trapped into cars. Now you got people that can die, burned or smoke inhalation in cars or heat. I've been told it's like an oven. I do know people that are counseling some of those cops. They're dealing with their own mistakes because, yeah, that mistake is clear now. And they're living with a lot of guilt. And for what it's worth, those cops and the firefighters, they lost their homes. Almost nobody's home survived. I know some of the cops that lost their homes. The point of this isn't that no mistake was made. Yes, mistakes were made. They're easy to see in hindsight. And maybe they should have been seen in the real time as well. Judging the threat of the power lines versus a fire you can't yet see, but in retrospect is clearly becoming the major threat. But it wasn't nefarious to trap people in town to kill them. Again, maybe it's even more nefarious because it's human error. All right, number four, the missing kids. I have people that ask me about this all the time. Where's the 2,000 missing kids? There's even people that have taken this storyline and said, there's tunnels under Lahaina and it's a child pedophilia ring. And I mean, it's that's insane. I knew from the first time I went there, something wasn't adding up. There was thousands predicted to be dead, missing, and there was a very viable concern of, well, kids were at school, kids were sent home, parents went off to work, how many kids died in the fire? I still don't know the answer to that question. We're still running DNA on people. The numbers are way less than everybody thought. I believe it's something like 97 now confirmed dead, 77 of those identified, another 30, 25, 30 who are missing. I don't know how many of those are kids. Again, as you're going to hear in a moment with E.C. Caho, he says he saw at least three kids, held one of them. I asked him why were those kids alone. He doesn't know. How would he know? There's not 2,000 missing kids. That's what's missing from the school system after everybody scatters, and everybody did, to all parts of the island. They don't re-enroll in the school system. 
eventually some do and there's children. I know for a fact they're, they're doing school in churches. They're doing school under trees outside. They're doing school anywhere they can. They're asking private schools to give space to the public schools. Kids are re-enrolling in private schools, trying to just come up with the tuition. It's a mess, man. It's a mess. But it's not 2,000 kids missing and taken off somewhere. I knew the minute I was there, something wasn't adding up. If there was that many kids missing, there would be moms all over TV. You and I both know it, screaming, where's my child? Where's my child? Even if they felt guilt because they'd gone out of work that day, they'd be saying, where's my child? And by the way, on the number of dead, I knew something was off right away. I wasn't meeting enough people. And I met, again, so many who knew this guy or that guy that died. Most of the time I heard my friends and family are safe. I would hear, oh, yes, I know a man that died. But in a town of 13,000 people, if 1,000 were dead, you would have been hearing it all the time. In a town of 13,000 people, if 100 are dead, that might be more reflective of what I experienced anecdotally. The numbers are hard to grab because everybody scattered right away. And those that died were burned to ash. I know that for a fact. They were looking for small body parts. Logistical nightmare for the FBI, everyone else working in this. So... Let's talk about the federal agencies for just a moment. So here's what I've been told about FEMA. I have talked to many people who have complaints. Bureaucratic, boxed people out of relief efforts. I saw that that first week, right? Boxed people out, got in the way of civilian efforts. These are legitimate criticisms of FEMA. I'm continuing to monitor FEMA on how they're going to treat charitable donations. I want to make sure that doesn't deduct from any available FEMA funds. I'm going to make sure I'm all over that. But I've also heard from guys like EC, who you'll hear here in chemo, they worked with FEMA Search and Recovery, that they were blown away by how professional and good they were. I've had conversations outside of that where I was told those guys that they worked with, it's the FEMA teams from Washington, and I believe Texas A&M are the Navy SEALs of FEMA. They are the ones that are absolute experts in what they do. The best of the best. And that's the ones that... Many of the guys I talked to had experience with. Again, others had bad experiences with FEMA stepping in and shutting it down. All of those experiences are real, and they're for you to judge. I'm just here to share with you the facts that I know, the truth. Now, finally, number, I believe, five, media access. This is an absolute problem. This was a problem. I hate to say that I might have been the one to experience it first, but again, you'll remember the stories. I had to show, I didn't say that I was media. I had to show that I was a property owner in that first week to get over there through a police checkpoint. And that was on the other side of the island. I mean, media and everybody was blocked out for, oh my gosh, 30 or 40 miles in each direction to get over to West Maui. And then even when I was there, I was at Napili Plaza doing a story on humanitarian efforts and his volunteer civilian efforts 20 miles away, 15, 20 miles away from Lahaina. And I was confronted by someone from the mayor's office who said, I can't be here. He said, do you have permission to be here? I said, yes, I do. And then he went away on his walkie-talkie and came back. Okay, you do not have permission to be here, he told me. West Maui is a media-free zone. I said, no, it's not. It's the United States of America. There's no such thing as a media-free zone. So I experienced that firsthand. There's a lot of videos out there right now of different citizen journalists confronting public officials and cops about why it's so shut down. Here's what I think's gone on. So first of all, they shut that down button tight, too tight right away. I experienced it again. Now, why? Not because they were covering up arson or a direct energy weapon attack. 
for a couple of reasons. One, privacy. There were still tourists on the island after the fire, and they started getting the tourists off the island. In order to leave, you have to go through Lahaina. The stories I've been told is that tourists were taking pictures, getting out, taking pictures of the burn zone with themselves in the photo. This really upset a lot of locals, really upset locals. Second, the locals wanted to get in to see their homes, see what was left. I heard there was a near riot in the first couple of days afterwards as people trampled through there. And I don't know what the confrontation, I don't know if it was local versus tourists. I don't know if it was local versus local, but it became a near riot. I was described three safety. They did not want people trampling through that ash. It's full of asbestos, lead, but a lot of conversations. You can be near it. You can be five yards away, but if you're in it and you're trampling through it and it's coming up, you're breathing it in. It sticks to your clothes. It's incredibly effect, uh, harmful on kids. If they hug you out on the clothes, it's bad news. Bad news. So they wanted to keep people out. The black screens, this is something on the internet, the black screens they're erecting all over the place. I do not think that is any type of conspiracy. That is on almost any, any construction site. Certainly in Hawaii, I've seen it a lot. It's a dust screen. It's a privacy screen. It's a safety screen. You can still see past it in many places. Trust me, you, because of the topography. Hill goes up. You can still see past it. They're, they're trying to keep people out of the burn zone for those reasons that I've just laid out to you. Now, it doesn't mean they didn't overstep. They have. You still can't pull over on the highway above and start taking pictures down there. There's still cops ready to run you off. Why? Why? I think that culturally, you've got an island of local politicians who are empowered in this moment who flexed muscle. I think culturally, there is privacy over free speech. Issues with many people there. I think you have unimpressive politicians declaring to their minions, get media out of West Maui. Insanity. And here's the problem with that approach. And that was a problem. And you're still seeing videos up today of people revealing this. It leads to other things. When you shut down information, just like our government censoring COVID or Ukraine, you give rise to people filling that information and not all of that information is true. That's what I wanted to share with you today. That is a massive mistake by all those government agencies because you have given rise to the untruths or the conspiracy that is dividing people, not just in their pursuit of the truth, but in rebuilding. That is fact from fiction as far as I know. And again, I'm here to tell you the truth. And I've put a lot of effort, a lot reporting on the ground, talking to so many people into getting to the truth. Okay. I would encourage you true X life on Instagram. Kimo Clark has done two videos on these conspiracies. Again, no one's more in it than him, including the idea that 300 bodies washed up on Lanai. He goes through a lot of these things. I think you deserve the truth. Trust me. The truth doesn't absolve FEMA. The truth doesn't absolve the government. No one's been more critical than me, okay? And will continue to be. The truth doesn't absolve local politicians. Does the truth absolve local cops from making mistakes? That's for their conscious and perhaps a negligence suit. But the truth is everything. So I did one of my best to share with you the truth. Now you can hear it from E.C. Caho in this interview. So tell me, tell me what happened that night. That night, uh, um, when the fire happened, I, I didn't even think of 
dying at all. Um, <laughs> I was fighting the fire and one of my co-workers was with me. Uh, his name James and we went through around here some crazy stuff that I pulled and I guess I made him feel uncomfortable and get to the point he's like uh, I want to go home you know and I know I know deeply in me he's his, his worry about for the both of us and I'm like yeah I'll drop you off to the base shot and you can can head home rest you know and I'll just do my thing when I was driving around around here fighting the fire it was just only me the water truck was on front street and there's a lot of people trapped in there and I and I happened to be just there to get them out you know when I was coming around um, around with the water truck on Lanipoco side and the cops were like told me to don't go in you know at that time the smoke the fire is like going crazy but i didn't stop i know there's people out there that needs help and i have the water truck to do it and it just i'm like god just just work 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 through me and guide me in there you know i don't i don't know where they're at but just take me in there and that's when I came around the cop car, I just blow right through it. And I get down here. There's like two cars was stuck there. Don't know what to do. Looking left and right, there's no way out. And then I was popping out in the middle of nowhere and was screaming at them and shooting water to keep, them, keep, keep their car cool. Because the fire was, was pretty crazy. I screamed at them like, hey, follow me, follow me, you know. And they did. So what we did, they followed me and they also stay on the, on the right side of my truck because we're heading that way, heading south. So I'm pretty much using the water, my, one of my canyon on the side and spray them and keep them cool. And we can walk, like work our way out, you know? So we got out there, they thanked me so many times, you know, uh, it could have been worse. The, the heaviest part of my rescue was, I came around, I came around on, I saw one little girl, pretty much, yeah. <clears throat> she was still breathing, but she, she can't hang up, hang, you know, a little longer. And I held that little girl on my arms and she looked at me and that was it. And I was like, get down on top of her and I just cry. Even though the fire was right by my truck, it's ready to burn down the truck and brought me and up in the same place as her. And at that point I have to make a split decision for myself, you know. I was so upset, I'm so, I was so mad. I ripped my clothes off and wet my shirts so that keep me keep my face cool and you, you know you have that decision you have to toss some something out of the way and you have to run for your life and that's something that the next day I had to think about it and, and I think that's that's not how you 
how you play someone is, you know, that lost their lives. And, and it's been hunting me um, day and night. Couldn't sleep. Um, I'll go for a run, like two o'clock in the morning till five. And pretty much like that every day, you know. Every time that I can't sleep, I either go run or go to the gym or find something to stay busy, you know, get my mind off of it. So, time the fire happened, so I, I couldn't save that kid, but I was able to save a couple more kids down in Front Street by 505. There was uh, four teenagers, uh, they happened to be a tourist, and they were running, looking for way out, you know. And <clears throat> I only have this little bit of water in my tank. It's pretty much for me to get me out of the fire. So what I did, I sacrificed that water for those, for those teenagers by screaming at them, hey, if you wanna leave, do, do exactly what I said. You know, just climb the steps behind the, the water truck and jump in inside because there's still water in there and keep them cool. I also, I also like stop the truck and come back up. I just wanna make sure they, they're not gonna struggle in there, you know? Hey, whatever your shirt, take your shirt off, wear them, you know, put on your face so you can breathe, you know, have some kind of like, you know, clean um, air that you can, instead of like smoke is over the tank already at the time. Um, and I cut them out from 505 and take them up to Hokiokio. That's where um, Goodfellow and our, us, that's uh, where our base are um, right now. And I don't know what time was it, but I came back to refill, but there's no, there's no water. There's no water for me to get back on it. And uh, yeah, I save a lot of homes up that way when the fire was shift going uphill. A uh, couple of my friends' house, uh, also Kimo's best friends. Um, I went over there, um, there was a lot of gates and no one be able to get in there. I know where those dirt roads and where those gates at. Um, I came up, it was locked. You know, I, I don't know how to open it. I don't have the goat. Um, all I did, I just back up the truck and dodged the, uh, the gate open. <laughs> um, there's a, that's the only way that I can think of the fastest way to open, you know, so I can get in and go take care of the fire. Let's go back um, to your work on Front Street. Yeah. How many people do you think it was that in the end you escorted out of Lahaina? Uh, probably 16 or 17 people. And how many trips was that? Five trips. So you would go into Lahaina with your truck somewhere along Front Street or downtown, yeah. uh, find a group of people, yeah. and they climbed on the truck, or they followed the truck out of Lahaina? No, I, I told them to get in the truck. It's, it's too crazy, to, you know, the, the fire and the wind, the wind make it worse, you know. When I 
when I get out from the truck, I can feel the heat and it's like all over my face, you know. And sorry, but sometimes I like have to keep touch my hair and feel my hair if I still have hair, <laughs> and just to make sure I don't, I don't lose my hair. Um, yeah, but it was pretty crazy, and there's power line down there, um, trees all over the, all over the road, you know. Um, uh, one time I went in and I tried to get uh, back and there was like two or three cars was already like blocking my way out. When I went in, there was no cars, but on my way out, there was cars all over the place. And I said to myself, oh, I'm F pretty much. I'm stuck in there, you know, just no way out for me. Um, Somehow it's just the thought in my head, I'm not slowing down. I'm gonna use the bumper on my back truck and just keep pushing everything into the side and just get through it. Um, there was power line hanging on top of my canyon and I just dragged them along the way with me. And I'm, I'm like, this. I'm not dying today. No one's gonna die. <laughs> um, those power lines, whatever is coming with me, no matter what, I'm not stopping. You never worried about dying? I'm not worried about dying. I was worried about saving people. You, when you say you weren't worried about dying, because it never occurred to you or because it wasn't your priority? It, it wasn't my priority. And what I did, I think, is not because of my experience that I have. I think it's, it's pretty much God worked through me. And I think he planned everything lined up for me, you know, without my knowledge because at that time, I was doing the rescue in my head. Whatever I think of to do, that's what I'm gonna do. That's what God wants me to do. If I change that, something's gonna go wrong. So whatever was coming to my mind, that's what I'm gonna do. And that's, that's pretty much it, that's what I did. So help me understand the, the scene when you're making these trips in, you know, I hear about the low visibility, the yep. smoke made it really hard to see. Yes. I, I know that at some point you encounter flames. Yeah. But one thing I, I keep hearing from people that I think for a lot of people who weren't there and who are watching, it's hard to understand. It's what you've described, the heat. Fire yep. shift that way. It's, yeah. Um, yeah, you can feel the heat before the fire gets close to you, pretty much. But when I, when I get in, for sure I didn't, most of the time I didn't see anything. It's just blacked out, even though it's like broad daylight, you know. Um, I just went through it and I'm like, I'm hoping, hoping it's gonna pass and get, give me some kind of visibility to, you know, continue doing what I was doing. And did it pass? Did you get visibility? I, yeah, I did. I did going forward and then make some turn around over there and came back. And it's still the same. Everywhere I go, it's like that. It's like dark black smoke and fire mixed together coming down. And it's not like coming vertical like the fire, but it's leaning with the wind and it's making it even harder. And what surprised me um, with all that crazy that I went through with the water truck, not a single burn on the water truck. I came out and like look around the water truck, not a single burn. And I know I was, the, the man above was, you know, protect me though, along the way. Where was most of your work 
in Lahaina. I know you mentioned Front Street, and I know you said you were taking people south. Yes. So where were you that night in town? So I was in 505. But, um, oh yeah, we were in Kanapali, uh, coffee farms, and that's where we were working at. And we had to come through some crazy power line that is already leaning. I have videos, I um, everything that I talk about, I have um, videos of all of it. I don't know what's the best, um, how I can put this to, into words, but I know I don't have to prove to prove my what I what I've done. But you know nowadays everyone can just make up a story and not even bring up like a proof to it. So that's why I took those pictures. It's because my story is true, and what I saw is true. Because there's a lot of uh, crazy, crazy conspiracy out there, you know, about people talking about um, the laser beam and all that, and none of that's true. And um, pretty much blaming the cops uh, for putting up barricades to, you know, pretty much get people stuck in there to die. I, I don't think someone would do that, you know? And I have pictures of everything, you know? Of the power lines being on the road, you know? Um, the cops, really, they, they do their best, you know? They do their best in the firefighters. You know, I have no, I have, any, I have nothing against them. They did what they, what they could, you know? And for people to like blame the cops for not helping them, you know, why, why the cops didn't go, go in there and help people out? You know, to be able to go help, you need some kind of um, support, you know, to, to keep you, you know, from getting burned in there too. Like water, you know, you need a water truck. And I was, be able, I was able to do that because I have a water truck. I don't think the cops can do that. You know, what, they're gonna put, put out the fire with their blue lights, you know? That's the, all that they, they have, you know? Um, <clears throat> the firefighters is like, they're heroes, you know. Um, they were day night, uh, nighted, night and day, fighting, fought the fire, even lost their own homes. And they're still out here, you know. And people still, still complaining. And the conspiracy about everything is just insane, you know. Um, it's pretty much those conspiracy um, gonna end up divide us, you know, but I want people of Lahaina to know that we're the one, we see everything from day one, you know. And as somebody who was there that night, and it sounds like every element of this story from yeah. the beginning yeah. to all through the night, your experience in the response, as you point out, from the fire, yeah. from the police, yeah. maybe from the electric company, your experience is what? That amidst chaos, everyone was doing their best, that perhaps mistakes were made? Yes, that er everyone do their part, but things just happen so quick. So you can't, you can't really like, you know, plan things ahead, you know, and bring more water trucks or more cops to, you know, help people get out of there, you know? It just happened so quick. And a lot of people just abandoned their cars on the road, 
you know, and it just pretty much caused more traffic and then it's just all piled up over there and nowhere to go and all they can think of is jumping the ocean for safety. I wanted to ask you that. You know, everybody wonders why there was so much traffic and people stuck on Front Street. And part of it has been the suggestion, you know, yeah. that the police were not letting people out of town, yeah. certainly on the highway, because yeah. of downed power lines. Yes. But there has been some question, why couldn't people get off of Front Street? Was what you saw that people abandoned cars at some yeah. point, ran from their cars, and then that made it so cars behind couldn't get out? Couldn't get out, yes, correct. And, you know, people uh, pretty much panic, pretty much, right? So when one person left their car like on traffic, it's gonna cause a lot of problem because the next person or behind it can't move forward because it's just, that person is long gone, you know? And that's gonna create like a big problem on the road. And that's part of what you saw, why people yes. were trapped? Yes. And that's the only way for them to get, to get out of the situation is the ocean. And thank God the ocean is right there. So. Isia, you're addressing a lot of the things that people question online about this story. One of the things people ask a lot about is the number of people that have died and the number of people have missing. Now, you have just told me that you have seen yeah. bodies, you have seen people. Do you have anything to help us understand the missing and the dead? The conspiracy about people, um, I think the number is pretty much just insane. And how much kids it was missing. Um, school buses was long gone, you know, the conspiracy about the school buses, oh, where, where, where was all these school buses was over here, and the next day, no longer over there, where, were, where was the kids, you know. Uh, when I was fighting the fires, I saw the school buses was going and pick up tourists from the hotels. It's pretty much evacuated and had over, dropped them off to the airport, pretty much. That's, I see those buses like was coming back and forth. Uh, the school buses and uh, the conspiracy about the kids being taken away and and still not found and and parents it's just overwhelming man and let's put it this way the when you make up all kind thought like that and it become and li lies about it and make people believes it it become a big problems you know the amount of People, I don't know how, you know, how many people was strapped in their own build, like over in there. I don't know that because we can't even tell because they turn into, they could be ashes and I don't know how you're gonna get a DNA out of it. But I see a couple probably, um, I don't know how many bodies that I saw, but it's more than 10, include kids. How many kids? Three. You knew that specifically? Yeah. That wasn't a guesswork number. That seemed to be something you could answer very quickly. Yes. There's no, there's no about it. <laughs> I'm sorry about that language. But yeah, I drove past by them and I couldn't just keep driving without checking if they have any kind of, you know, sign of life. How old? I'll say, Seven, five, and eleven. Where was their family, their parents? I have no idea. I have no idea. The first one I checked, just, just no sign of life. The second one and the third one is that girl, that little girl. And I felt that she's still 
she still has sign of life, but that's why I start holding her on my arms. And she looked at me and that was it. And I knew, and I was crying. And I said to her, hey, at least you didn't die alone. Every day I come to work and all those things that happen. Um, you know, I have that kind of look, you just have to be, put up a fake smile on your face, you know, and just go to work. But deep down inside of you, you feel dead because of the thing that you saw. Um, I just want people to be strong. People in Ohio, the conspiracy is crazy. It's gonna, it's gonna divide us for sure. If they wanna hear a lot of story, I'm over, I'm over here, Kimo's here, you know. We would love to talk to, to the people, you know. I don't care about other people. I just, I, you know, I care about the people in Lahaina, you know. What's the hardest for you to deal with right now? Um, Is it that little girl you just told me about? Yeah. There's so, other stuff you told me about on your phone. What's the hardest? Um, that's the hardest one, pretty much. Um, before all these fires was going on, I, I lost my mother, right? So I, to, to cancer. It was October of last year. So my life has been roller coaster already. And then all these things just, you know, come up together, just pile up and just, I don't know where to go, you know? I feel it's like when I go to work, I, like, I don't know where's home. You know, even if I go home, it's not feels home, you know? And that's why everybody start notice I work late at night, you know? Um, either find cleaning something or, you know, try to sleep, can't sleep, and then I just got on, uh, put on, put on my working boots and just go for a run every night like that. You lost your house? I didn't lost everything. I didn't lost my coworkers, my boss. I just lost here and here. Kimo told me though you lost some family as well in the fires. Yes, cousins of mine. Um, they live right by Safeway. And yeah, I just found out that like three, day, three, three days later. Yeah, I, I didn't care about if I lose my house or anything, you know, but losing someone, uh, family member, this, that sucks. How does that make you feel that you're on one end of town yeah. fighting fires, saving lives? On the other end of town, you're losing family in the fire. Um, the way I see it, um, even though it's, it's, it's hard to think about it, but there's, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, they're already gone. There's people out there still looking for a way out. And that's where I was heading. If I can't save my families, but I can save other people's. And that was important. That was my whole goal of fighting the fires. I know I can't fight the fire, fight the fires from from the bottom, but uh, my goal was just going going in to save lives. How many hours were you in town? I was the first. Uh, in town probably seven, 
seven hours, seven or eight hours. Fire started at roughly four o'clock that day, yeah. a little before. And all the way, night, day. I have, I have videos of everything and I will, I'll be happy to share it with you guys. So I want to ask you this, EC, not because I'm just morbidly curious, but because I think when people don't have information and they don't understand, they do fill it with other information. Yeah. So you saw, yeah. you saw probably as much as anybody in town that night, yeah. if not more than anyone else who had a perspective that night, that day and that night. When you encountered 10, yeah. 12 people who've died, three kids who've died, yeah. what is their situation? Are they on the street? Are they in cars? I know you weren't able to get into homes, yeah. So what was the situation where you saw that people had lost their lives? On the streets, um, get stuck on roof, things collapsed down and got them right there. Uh, in their cars, with their dogs. <laughs> the kids you saw were on the street? The kids I saw was on the street. Prison Street. Prison Street? Yeah. Like they were running from the fire? Yes, they were running from the fire, but they can't it's because it's too much smoke. And just those poor kids can't, can't keep up with that. And you're engulfed with smoke and it's dark and it's black. Yeah, and yeah, when I, when I get to, to them, it's like, that's when the fire is like already probably 50 feet away from me and it's coming fast. And then I was coming and then past them and I realized, oh, those are kids. And I back up and I just, you know, park the truck and I open the truck, run down and do the best as I can. Again, I ask you this to try to understand. When you saw these people, what is it that they had died from? Smoke inhalation? Smoke, uh, power lines. Powerless. Just come down and yeah, take them out. I mean, you've shared a lot with us today. I mean, I think you've told me the answer to this question, but I feel like I just want to ask you again. How are you doing? I'm not doing at my best. I'm not one to ten. I'm at four, and I'm that kind of guy that that everyone that I work with that I always try the best and be a good example for everybody and put my emotion away and, you know, and do what it's supposed to be, it needs to get done. And then I go home and start, you know, get with my emotion at home. Yeah. What will you do next? And then I show up the next day and like nothing was happened. But Kimo noticed, he can see it and he knows that I won't, I'll never that guy to give up on anything. So what will you do next? I just show up to work and go to work and then go home and then I'll try to eat a good meal and then try to manipulate my mind, like watch TV and hopefully I'll fall asleep. But never happened. I just keep me awake. It gets me so angry and get me all mad for no reason, you know, upset in myself. I could have done more. And yeah, I wish there was 
people out there with me, you know, we could have done more, but, but I started thinking about it and there's nothing I can do. Nothing more I can do. Is there anything more that you want to tell us? Um, right now, um, my heart is just go out to the people of Lahaina. You know, I know most of my friends, they try to get me to hang out with them. And I, I'm not even ready for to be social. Uh, before my mom passed away, her last words, her last words to me was, don't leave Maui. And I started thinking about it. Maybe she knew that something is going to happen and I was, and I'm the right guy for the job. You know, it's crazy. Guess my mom was, was knew something is gonna happen. And that's, 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 that's it. I just want people of Lahaina to be strong. We can all go through this together. We just need to be patient and trusting us of doing this work. You know, we're not, we're not trying to make ton of money to manipulate the process, you know. That's why we're here, we're doing this work and, and we uh, keep them updated by posting it, you know, on social media, you know. I don't care what other people from different places are gonna say. You know, everybody's all think crazy right now. I and mean, we don't need that kind of energy around here in Lahaina. So, I appreciate you, man. Yep. Thank you for sharing this with me. No problem. There you go. I hope you stuck around for that interview. If you're still curious about more and you want to hear more about some of the theories that have gone on around Maui, uh, Truex, Life, Kimo Clark, he has two separate videos in total together. They're like 15 minutes each or 15 minutes in total. One's 10, one's six. You can hear more of these issues addressed. I think the important thing to remember there is that's a man who stepped up. And that is this story. I'm telling you, I've had people say, we'll get to the bottom of don't just do human interest stories. This is the bottom of it. Okay. It's about a man who did and saved. It's about a people who support one another. It's about humanitarians and Americans who give to rebuild. That is the bottom of it. Is there more on incompetence and accountability? Yes. Yes. But at the bottom of it, I promise you, that is the story about the goodness of people. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. Story number three. Getting you ready for the debate tonight, the GOP primary debate. We'll have more to break this down tomorrow. Pete Hegseth, Sean Duffy, perhaps Lawrence Jones will join us for a little bro fest in breaking down the debate. For now, here's what I'd have to say. Two sides of a coin. Be more aggressive, be less aggressive. Ron DeSantis, be better, be more aggressive. Ron DeSantis at his best, besides making policy and governing, was when he was at a podium dealing with a hostile media propagandist when it came to COVID, pushing back. And Ron DeSantis was solid, man, solid. He was a pugilist. He hit back. He's got to do that on the stage tonight. He's got to be that guy. He's got to show, which is going to be hard because I don't think it's in his personality, alpha, which is with charm positivity. He's got to try to thread that needle. He can't sit back as much as he did in the last debate. On the flip side of that coin, be less aggressive. Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy. Mike Pence, in my estimation, came off very coarse, 
very unlikable. He clearly went in that last debate intent on attack. I don't think it worked. Mike Pence needs to dial it back. Be a happier warrior. Vivek Ramaswamy's a happy warrior, but all the polling suggests he was very polarizing. I mean, he made a name for himself. He got attention. But women in particular didn't like Vivek, thought he was like the, the class troublemaker. Um, I think Vivek has to try to dial it back in some way. If I'm one of the other candidates, I'm telling you still, Vivek needs to be challenged on a lot of things. Positions he's held in the past, business he's done in the past. And I like Vivek. Everybody deserves to be challenged. I like Vivek personally, and I think he's wicked smart. But I don't know why somebody wouldn't challenge him on these positions. If I'm Vivek, answer it. You always have an answer. He's brilliant. I'm sure he'll have an answer. But be less aggressive. Maybe a little less polarizing in how you push that forward. If you want to win points, to quite honestly come in second. Because we all know this is all being run away with by Donald Trump. All right, I hope you found this valuable today. Again, I'll see you after the debates. We'll break down the winners and the losers of the GOP presidential primary debate. I'll see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.